Welcome to The Cutting Floor, a weekly podcast of West Cannon Baptist Church. Each week we'll be looking at topics and questions coming from the Sunday morning sermon passage that didn't make it into the sermon or were worth looking at further. In other words, what was left on the cutting floor. I'm Emily and with me is Pastor Zach. This week your sermon covered Genesis 1 verse 27 and 2 verse 15 through 22, which was the second installment in your mini-series Being Human. Some people believe that since Eve was created from the side of Adam, that Adam was originally created having both genders in one body, and then God separated the two individual genders when he created Eve. Is that true? You know, that idea has been floating around for a little while now. Um, It's certainly not one that we see prevalent in church history, but in the last few decades, particularly within the context of the ongoing sexual revolution within our society, a number of theologians and particularly um, transgender-affirming theologians have been trying to make an argument similar to that. So it's probably most popularized by a gentleman by the name of Austin Hartke, and uh, he's a graduate of Luther Seminary. He wrote a book, Transforming the Bible and the Lives of Transgender Christians. And in that book, uh, Hartke argues that man, or Adam, the Hebrew word in Genesis 127, is a word that is not referring to a biological male specifically, but is referring to mankind generally. And there is some truth to that. If we look at Genesis uh, 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It is plausible to say that when the text says there in 127, God created man in his own image, that it's referring to mankind, and then it gets further explained in the male and female he created them. But Hartke goes on to argue that the first person who was created was an androgynous person from from whom then subsequently the sexes were later divided into male and female. And so he would argue that that occurs in Genesis chapter 2, when the uh, the man, or in this case, the androgynous person is put to sleep and God from that person's side creates the woman. And it's at that point that there is a division between the sexes. I think there's a number of clear problems with that viewpoint. Number one, it, it ignores the immediate qualifier in chapter one, verse 27, male and female, he created them. So that is explaining what it means when it says that God created man in his image, that he created man, mankind, that is male and female, he created them. So it ignores that qualifier. It also ignores that in that qualifier, it says that God created them, not God split them, not God divided them, but that in the creation of these persons, they are created with the gender that God has given them, male and female. Robert Alter, who is a literary critic and maybe the greatest living commentator on the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew literature, and he's not even a Christian. He's, in fact, a secular Jew. But he remarks that such proposals like Hartke's lead to dizzying paradoxes in the rest of the narrative. So it's not tenable for us to look at Adam in Genesis 127 and say, this is just some androgynous uh, person. Also, we have to deal with the fact that in, in Matthew 19, Jesus says this, have you not read that he who created from the beginning made them male and female? So as we look, it's not just Genesis chapter one, but even how Jesus himself interprets Genesis chapter one leads us to the conclusion that God unambiguously created them male and female from the beginning, not one androgynous person that was then later divided into two sexes.
In your sermon, you talked about it being dangerous to think of man being divided into body and soul. Why is this dualism dangerous? So this dualism of conceiving of man as two parts really comes from the Greeks. Uh, Plato, in his philosophy of what's referred to as the cave, he had this idea of the higher forms of things being their spiritual essence and the material nature of things that we currently see in our world being their lower essence and that matter was evil and corrupted and that the spiritual forms was what we would experience in the afterlife. That was the good. And that ideology, that philosophy has pervaded culture and religions throughout time and is now very pervasive in Western thought today. We see this particularly in a transgender ideology that says that the psychological self, who we conceive ourselves to be, the sexual and gender uh, identities and ideologies that we have, those are the higher parts of our being and the material bodies that we find ourselves in, those are the lower parts of our being. And so we divide ourselves into these parts. The Bible does not present mankind as divided into parts. The Bible presents man as a unified essence, body, soul, all knit together, intentionally brought together by God and not intended to be divided or different values placed on the spiritual component of man versus the physical component of man. So we get ourselves into trouble when we do that. And the ultimate consequence is often in society, often in religion as well, that when you embrace dualism, you end up embracing a low view or a denigrated view of the physical bodies and the physical world around us. When in fact, the Bible presents both our physical bodies and the material world as good things that God has made, corrupted, yes, as a result of the fall, but the material world and our material, biological, physical bodies, these are good gifts from God. They ought not to be despised. And as we see throughout the scripture, they are worthy of honor and appreciation. In the creation narrative, it says that our bodies were made to be reflections of God's good design. Where else in the Bible does it teach about our bodies? Yeah, the Bible speaks often about the nature of our bodies. They are created by God and they are redeemed by Jesus Christ who came, we should note, in bodily form. He came in the the form and the body of a man in the incarnation. We read it in a number of places about the importance of our bodies and also what we do with them. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has a discussion with the Corinthian believers about the high view that they should have about their bodies and how that should transform what they do with them. He writes there at the end of chapter six, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So in a culture that was arguing that just like the stomach is for food, so our bodies are for sexual pleasure, Paul is saying instead, believers need to have a view of the body that appreciates the goodness of it and also that as believers, our bodies are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We are the we are essentially a temple of God in our bodies. And so we need to have a high view of the body. Paul will also say in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, the, the great passage where Paul is speaking about how unrighteous men have rejected the truth and how God has given them over to their licentiousness. Paul says that those who embrace the sexual immorality of the time, that they dishonor their bodies among themselves. And so apparently our bodies are worthy of honor and respect and value. And when we behave in certain ways, 
it's not only a spiritual offense against God, but it is also an offense against the honor of the bodies that God has given to us. And finally, I'll just say in 1 Corinthians, we read uh, that we are not going to be unclothed in the life to come, meaning that if we conceive of heaven as this place where we are these disembodied ethereal spirits floating around, that's not the picture of resurrection life that the Bible presents. It presents a, of a new creation, of a new heavens and a new earth where we will be clothed again in glorious resurrection bodies, uncorrupted by the fall, and we will always be embodied. This is what we were created for. So how does that impact how we live today? Well, I think, number one, it means that we need to hold high uh, what we do in the body as having importance. It, It should impact the way that we consider things like the gender confusion of our time, the way that we consider things like promiscuity as being uh, an offense against our body because it it detaches the importance of our bodies and what we do with them from the spiritual um, side of the sexual ethic that that God and uh, through the work of the apostles and through Jesus Christ paints throughout the New Testament. We need to think about issues like abortion. Uh, What does the phrase, my body, my choice mean when, when Paul says, you are not your own, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Issues of body disorders that people, including Christians, wrestle with. I think all of these things are impacted and transformed when we really think about the fact that our bodies are God-given gifts and are intended to be used for his glory. And that is particularly true if we are born-again believers who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. So based on everything that you've said about gender, how can we help someone in our lives who might be struggling with some type of gender confusion? You know, to some degree, it's easy enough to lay out the theological issues at play and to talk through those. Uh, It becomes much harder when we start talking about this in the context of relationship. And I think as we look around today, there are almost no families that are not in some way touched very closely by either someone in the family or a friend or a neighbor, coworker, you name it, some close relationship that is caught up in the gender confusion and the sexual confusion and the chaos of our time. So how do we walk out the theological truths that we've been discussing? I think a a few things come to mind, a handful of of suggestions. Number one, I think that we should pursue these kind of topics and discussions in the context of relationship. So we should be developing relationships with uh, unbelievers or even people who profess to be believers who take a different position on these things than we do. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, if if you were not to have relationship with the sexually immoral of this world, then you would not even need to be in the world. In other words, our place is to be in significant relationship with people who are in a uh, confused or sinful position and that we are able through relationship to speak truth and love. Uh, second, I think uh, that we need to know what the Bible is for and not just what it's against. I mentioned this a number of times on Sunday. We need to understand what does the Bible cast as the positive vision for our maleness, for our femaleness, for our bodies, for marriage, for sexuality, even at the same time that we are so well-versed on the things that the Bible prohibits. We need to be advocating what the Bible is promoting. Number three, I think we need to acknowledge the brokenness that sin causes. So as we're in relationship and as we're having these discussions with those that we love who are in a different place or are struggling in a particular uh, identity or a particular sexual sin or gender confusion, we need to be reminded that we are 
affected by the brokenness of the fall just as much as they are affected by the brokenness of the fall. We should bring that up in our conversations. But we also need to recognize that our our sinful natures, these things that have, have come through the result of the fall, they have broken so much of our perception of, of the right and what is good and what is holy and lovely and beautiful. And so we need to have our own perceptions, our identity, our sexual proclivities constantly reshaped by the transformation that comes through the renewing of our minds around the word. Number four, I think we also need to recognize, identify, and confront unhealthy stereotypes that lead people down the path of thinking that if they enjoy certain things like the arts or um, enjoy particular activities or don't enjoy other activities, that boy, if I'm a man and I enjoy these things that maybe stereotypically are not the macho male things that I need to begin to question whether or not I am a male or vice versa for females. We need to be able to separate what are the biblical standards for manhood and womanhood from what are the cultural stereotypes of what men enjoy versus what women enjoy. We need to break down some of those things and make sure that we're not bringing in an unhealthy vision of manhood and womanhood and casting that as the norm. Finally, I think we must lovingly maintain that there are only two genders, and that's male and female, how God created them. But there are also only two identities, and those are not gender identities. Those are spiritual identities. You and I are either in Adam, and that means that we are still in our sin, we are still susceptible to the old man and his desires, and we're living for the flesh, or we are a new creation and given a new identity because we are in Christ, meaning that if you and I are in Christ, we are new creations, as Paul says. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. And so for individuals who are trying to marry this idea of a gender identity, and Christian faith. We need to lovingly be willing to stand up and say there are not multiple identities. There are two. You are either in Christ or you are still in Adam, and that needs to shape who we are and therefore what we do. We will address the remaining listener questions in the coming weeks. If you have any questions from the sermon or the sermon passage that you would like to have answered on the podcast, please email them by 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning to questions at westcanon.org. We'll see you next week.